All right, so it's been about 10 months we've been working through the book of Revelation. Um, I was talking to someone uh, even yesterday, is a fellow pastor, and he said, you've been verse by verse through Revelation. And I said, yeah, we, we've been verse by verse through Revelation, taking about a chapter at a time um, and just, just plugging through. And, and every time we start these last 10 months, uh, this has been on the screen. Come, Lord Jesus. Really, the book of Revelation it is the, the great application of the book that I have pulled out of the book and tried to press upon all of us. This should be the great application of Revelation. When we're done with the book, when we think about the book, that we would desire to pray this prayer. This is the, the prayer that John prayed at the end of the book in Revelation 22 and verse 20. Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And John replies, replies Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. After all that John saw, this was his concluding remark. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is where Revelation is driving us. This should be the longing of our hearts. The long to see Jesus come back and make all things right. Now, admittedly, I had someone talk to me a couple months ago and just say, you know what, that's the theme, Steve, but it's, I haven't really seen it in the book of Revelation. It's really not been there. You've not emphasized it very much. And I would say that we haven't seen this theme too much. We haven't seen John praying this. We haven't seen John longing for this. Um, but this is where it's headed. And so you think about what, what did John see that, that culminated in this desire of him? Well, John, as chapter 1 says, write in a book what you see and send it to these seven churches. And, and so what he saw he wrote down and sent to us. And so what did he see? In chapter 1, he did see a glorious vision of Jesus, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in its strength. That's what, that's what John first off saw in Revelation that he wrote down for us. Then he heard Jesus speak these messages to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then they saw Jesus as a lamb that had been slain. And John saw this, this lamb worshipped by all of creation. Revelation 5.13, in every creature... In heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that is in them, he cried out saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He saw this crucified Lamb that was standing as if slain, this resurrected Lamb, if you will, being worshipped. And then after that, that introduction of, of Jesus and hearing his message to the churches and, and seeing Jesus worshipped in heaven, he saw the great judgment poured out upon the earth the seals trumpets and bowls increasing devastation coming upon the earth to those who have not followed the lamb but have pursued the the beast in the ways of the world but throughout the book of revelation in the midst of these judgments they're like little reprieves little little thoughts little little touches about how john recorded how he saw god protect and seal his saints revelation 7 and revelation 14 we also saw hints of the the final victory of the lamb with the the song of Moses sung in Revelation chapter 15. But it was not until the end that, that John really saw his coming. And, and all this, all this builds a longing in John's heart. He just says, come, 
Lord Jesus. And so this is the great application of the book of Revelation, in so much the, the theme that's running through the book, but it's the, the argument that progresses and develops that by the end, this is where we should be. We should long for, for coming Lord Jesus, the end of everything, the culmination of everything. It's kind of like a great novel that, that leads up to a climax giving its final expression of victory in the final chapter or two, right? So there, there are different motifs of stories, and this is like a, a climax story, a, a mission, if you will, a quest that uh, people are on, and when they get to the end, there's a, there's a great culmination. Or it's like a great movie, right, that follows a hero on a quest, and the, the last minutes of the film, the quest is finished. That's the book of Revelation. When the quest is finished, it is, come, Lord Jesus, when I see everything that's going to take place. Now, the entire book, we get glimpses of Jesus, but not very much. He's usually identified as a lamb who was slain, sitting on a throne. The lamb whose name was written on the foreheads of his followers who follow him wherever he goes. But with all these glimpses, we don't see him coming until, until our text today. Revelation 19. You can open your Bibles there. I would encourage you to do that. Revelation 19. We're going to look at the second half of the chapter. And this is where John describes the return of Christ. We see what happens when Jesus comes. When, when we pray, come Lord Jesus, we are praying that the second half of Revelation 19 would come to pass. It's what we should be praying. So my message this morning is entitled, When Jesus Comes. This is what happens when Jesus comes. Listen to what happens. Revelation 19, 11 through 21. <clears throat> then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on, a, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that come, came from the mouth of him who was seated, sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is what we're praying for. But come, Lord Jesus. We see two things in our text this morning. That's what we're praying for. The first thing we say, what, what does Jesus do when he comes? 
You know, there's lots in the Bible that speaks about his coming. And some, like, I'm not sure how, how clear an image you have of what's, what's happening. But this is the first thing that Jesus does. He, he fights the battle. Verses 11 through 16. In verse 11, we see Jesus coming mounted on a horse. Then he saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Now, verse 11 doesn't say this is Jesus. But the identity of this rider is clearly Jesus. Uh, if you look at verse 13, he's called the Word of God. That brings us back to John's first gospel where it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John 1, 1, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this Jesus who dwelt among us is now coming to us on a white horse. And this is far different when Jesus was on earth and entered Jerusalem as a king long ago. In fact, you remember that time he came, that Palm Sunday that we call it, into Jerusalem. He was riding not on a horse, he was riding, help me, on a on a donkey. And the crowds that came out to meet him were, were crying out this, Hosanna, John twelve thirteen. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They recognized the king was coming. He was on a donkey, humble, on the foal of a donkey. But now here in Revelation, the king is coming, not humbly mounted on a donkey, but on a white army horse. The last time we saw a white horse like this in the book of Revelation was in Chapter 6 and verse 2, with the opening of the first scroll, this white horse had a rider on it who had a bow and a crown, and the, the rider went conquering into conquer. In Revelation, a, a white horse is a, a war horse. And this is what Jesus does when he comes riding on this horse when he returns. He's going to be ready to fight the battle. In, in verse 11, Jesus is identified as faithful and true. Now, for all intents and purposes, faithful and true, they're, they're really about the, the same. They're synonyms. And the point isn't to distinguish them like, like he's faithful and true. Like, like you can really just, you, you should like merge them together. He is, he is faithfully true. He is, he is truly faithful in all things. And we've seen this designation throughout the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is described as the, the faithful witness. In chapter 3, verse 7, talking to the church of Philadelphia, it's called the, the true one. To the church of Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 14, he's called the faithful and true witness. This is true of Jesus. He's the faithful one who will keep all his promises. <clears throat> Every promise that he, he has made will come true. <clears throat> Unlike the beast and false prophet who will deceive the world. You can see their deception right even down here in verse 20 of our text, which speaks about the beast and the false prophet who deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Such a contrast. And this, by the way, this is apocalyptic literature. Everything's black and white in apocalyptic literature. You've either got one who's totally faithful and true or you've got one who deceives all the time. And we know life is much more muddy than that, but this is how, how apocalyptic literature works. Jesus, unlike the false prophet and the beast, is the one who fulfills his promises, faithful and true. And just with these words, right, the contrast between the true and the false is really evident in the book of Revelation. And, and just think about this now to the original hearers. So they're thinking about Rome coming upon them and the persecution that they're facing and the, the hardships that they're, they're struggling through. They're on the right path of trusting in Jesus. That's the message. You're on the path. He's the faithful one. He's promised. He'll keep you. And for all of us this morning, say, listen to Jesus. He's trustworthy. He's his promises will, will never fail. He promised eternal life to those who would trust in him. And he, he died on the cross to secure that promise. And now the one who's 
died for us, is coming to fight for us. It's the point at the end of verse 11. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. When Jesus comes, it's a time for him to judge. It's time for him to make war with the beast and with the false prophet. Now, wherever war takes place, there's always questions. Even there's questions sometimes of, of, of morality. Why, why, why did Russia invade Ukraine? Was that really a just thing to do? And on both sides. What about Israel pounding Gaza so hard? Is it just? Is it right? What about that? Well, when Jesus wages war, it's always just. Those questions may be asked, but the answer is yes, it is just. It's one of the clearest things in, in, in Revelation. Right? There's this, this huge polarity between the righteous and the unrighteous, the, the faithful and the true, and those who deceive. In the book of Revelation, we see the difference between those who follow the Lamb and those who follow the beast. Their lives, by the way, show it. Revelation 14, verse 4, shows that those purchased by the Lamb are those who walk in purity. In them, in their mouth, no lie was found. Revelation 4, verse 5. The wicked, on the other hand, are unclean and practice abomination and lying. Revelation twenty one twenty seven. And, and so it is. When Jesus comes to fight the battle by judging the wicked, he'll put an end to all evil. So when you say, come, Lord Jesus, you're saying, put an end to evil. Deal with it once and for all. In verse 12, he gives a description of what Jesus looked like. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head... For many diadems. And he had a name written that no one knows but himself. This description shows how capable Jesus is of executing his judgment perfectly. He saw him riding upon his own. He looked at his eyes. His eyes were like fire. We saw that in chapter 1. His, his eyes were like a flame of fire. It could be the fire of wrath or intensity. Or it could be, as some commentators say, it could be just the eyes are able to penetrate the hearts of men. In order to be able to judge righteously and justly as his eyes penetrate deep into the souls of everyone. His next phrase, on his head were many diadems, an indication of his rule and authority. Throughout the book of Revelation, we, we've seen this imagery of, of diadems used, and it, it's often used as scope of one's, one's sovereignty and power and, and influence. In Revelation 12, verse 3, the red dragon had, tw- had seven diadems upon its head, indicating power over several nations, seven nations. In Revelation 13, 1, the beast that came up out of the sea, had ten diadems on his head. Likewise, just kind of the authority that he's got. But Jesus here says many diadems. I just assume that's more than ten. It's maybe many, too many to count, maybe. And I think the idea here is sovereignty. He had more diadems than the red dragon and the beast. And the reason is simple. He's got more sovereignty and authority than either of those. And then we see this phrase. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. You want to know what that name is? I'm not going to tell you. Verse 13. The appearance of Jesus is further described. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Literally, we see Jesus' robe baptized in blood. In fact, there's so much blood on the robe of Jesus, it's as if it was taken off and there was this, this vat of blood and the robe was just kind of plunged in there and then lifted up and reddish, purplish, whatever color that would, would come out to be. It's only natural here to think that the blood is his own. But I don't think it is. It's a better explanation. It's better to understand this as the blood of his enemies. 
The blood's on his clothes because it has splattered under his garment when he put his enemies to death. Back in Revelation chapter 14, the last chapter of of that, the last paragraph of that chapter speaks about just the, the wine press of God's wrath and the blood. Another angel came out of the temple, verse 17, chapter 14. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar. The angel had authority over the fire, and he called out with a loud voice to the one who has the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Just the, the destruction there. Just this winepress imagery has been used before. The picture of the vine growers who reap the grapes and they throw them into this big wine press which either squeeze and squeeze and twist and twist or even sometimes the ancient world you, you step on it, step on it and all the, the juices kind of get up all over your, your shins and all over your feet and all over your robe, whatever you're there and then all eventually like it's squeezed down into just liquid with all the, the scraps, whatever, lead, the leading, just leave, left down there at the bottom of the vat. And, and that's the imagery that John sees of the judgment. The angels reaping the harvest. With the harvest in grapes, it's wicked people have come for judgment. They're placed in the vat and squished and squished and squished until their blood flows out. And pretty soon, right, you have enough people, blood rises in the vat, and this blood flows out to be a river is kind of the imagery of how deep the bloodshed will be. So great is the, the wrath and fury of God that it blood flows freely. That's the extent of God's wrath upon his enemy. And that's what you're praying for. You say, Jesus, come. You say, God, take vengeance upon your enemies. That that you've paused for so long. Bring it about. It's no wonder then why Jesus' robe was baptized in blood. Churning bodies of people, forcing blood out of their bodies. It's an illusion that John gives in Revelation 19. Even at the end of verse 15. Look at, look at, look at verse 15 at the end. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Just think about it. When Jesus came to earth, his blood was shed. But when Jesus comes a second time, he will shed blood. That's what Isaiah prophesied, beginning of Isaiah chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He was splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. He says, it is I, speaking in righteous, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. The day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Isaiah 63. That's what this passage is talking about. Jesus coming with splattered blood upon his robe to come and execute his judgment, his vengeance. And he alone, by the way, is pouring out God's wrath upon the unbelieving. Right? And it's not the people who are doing it, it's, it's Jesus who does it. So as much as you might look at Jesus as he walked around the earth, you might have maybe a, a feminine look at him as he, he wore a dress and he talked soft things. 
He was a lamb, remember? But he's also a lion. He's going to come and devour. But he does it alone. He doesn't need our help. Now, verse 14, we see armies are coming with Jesus. If you look there, and the armies of heaven... Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I believe here the armies following him are saints. It's his people. Those, as Psalm 110 verse 3 said, have volunteered freely in the day of his power. And check out how they're described. They're described as, as, as also being on white horses. They also are waging wars. But their garments are clean. Their garments are white. What does this mean? It means these armies are for show. They're not for fighting. We don't read of any swords in, in their hands. We don't notice any sort of, of weapons of these armies. They're just following Jesus. I think this is the great reality of Jesus coming. When he comes, he will come with his saints, and we essentially will be following if we're there. Like, however the time works in Revelation. Okay, I've got it all figured out. But, but whatever. Believers are there following, and they're clothed in, in white linen, unarmed, but they don't have to be armed because Jesus is the one who's armed and he's going to slaughter everybody. We don't fight because God says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. We don't need to fight. According to verse 19, these armies are attacked. Right? But they don't fight. It's Jesus in our place. Right? Let's go on. Look how he fights. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. A weapon comes out of his mouth. A sword comes out of his mouth to destroy the nations. And his imagery here is clear. Jesus fights with his words. The words are the power of God. When God created the world, he simply said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and it was so. Let the waters below, the heavens be gathered to one place, and the dry land appear. It was so. And likewise, Jesus conquering his enemies to defeat. All he needs to do is say, speak such is his powerful word. I love the way Paul brings this up. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Jesus just breathes on his enemies and they fall. This is true in his earthly ministry as well. Remember when the band of soldiers came to arrest Jesus? With the lanterns and torches and weapons, they came when Jesus was in Gethsemane praying with his disciples. Jesus knew where they were coming for, and they kind of came and confronted him. He says, what do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And do you remember what happened when he said, I am he? They fell back. They fell on the ground. They're just so intimidated by the, the mouth of what he said. How much more do the enemies fall back and fall at the time when they see him coming in power? Well, in Revelation 19, Jesus merely speaks victory, and victory comes. Martin Luther said it well. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, when we're talking about Satan's force, we're talking about devils filled, Satan's, the, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The sword that comes out of his mouth utterly defeats his enemies. It strikes down the nations utterly. In fact, did you see that? What his word does? Verse 
15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Isaiah says all the nations of the earth are like a drop in the bucket. Or the power of God. The power of Jesus here. In the next phrase, verse 15, we read that Jesus will rule them with a rod of iron. Phrase taken right from Psalm 2. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers together against the Lord and against his anointing. Against his anointed ones, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Right? That's where the kings of the earth striving right, against the Lord. Against the, no, we're going we're gonna to tear them, we're going to rip them apart. Psalm 2 verse 4, but he who sits in the heavens laughs at their feeble attempts at rebellion. And his wrath comes. Chapter 2 verse 9, he shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This, this is Jesus. This is the mild Lamb of God that we follow. He's coming now as a lion in his judgment. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the answer to the prayer, thy kingdom come, when Jesus establishes his kingdom. He's got to do this to reign in righteousness forever. But when God's judgment comes, the kingdoms won't stand. They'll be crushed like the same way a bar of iron crushes a, a clay pot. That's the illustration given in Revelation 17 and 18. Babylon, this great prosperous city, was struck down. Chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He's the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and those with Him are called the chosen, the faithful. He'll just conquer them. He'll just destroy them. And the Lamb will overcome them by crushing them and ruling them. That's the phraseology here, verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I just say this, of the victory of Jesus, there is no doubt. Verse 16 of Revelation chapter 19. On his robe and on his thigh he had a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Name for me a king. Jesus is the king over that king. Name me a lord. Jesus is the lord over that lord's. There's no question here the power and might and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. He rules over all kings. He is the master over all masters. It's even branded on his thigh, on his robe. When Jesus comes, he fights the battle. Second point, when Jesus comes, he feeds the birds. You might think of that. You might think Mary Poppins. Feed the birds, toppins a bird, toppins, toppins, is calling for you. Terrible song, right? For me, right? it's better, but that's not quite what it means. If you, if you knew biblical terminology, you'd see feed the bird. Oh, you'd know all about that. The Old Testament talks about this a lot. Let's just talk about it. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. How he's standing in the sun, not getting burned, I don't know. This is apocalyptic. Enjoy it. Step into it. With a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Here's the angel summoning the birds to a feast. I mean, typically, right, when, when we have a feast, we don't summon the birds in this way, right? We capture them. We summon the people to eat the birds. But here we're summoning the birds for the great supper of God. Apparently, God is going to be the host at this feast for the birds. Mind you, the birds aren't called this feast, aren't like canaries and robins and bluebirds, like chirp, 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 pretty little birds. These are like vultures who live on the carcasses of dead beings. 
And notice what's on the menu, verse 18. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. You have the flesh of kings, you have the flesh of captains, you have the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, the flesh of the riders. In summary, you've got the flesh of every human being, every kind of human being, whether they're slave or free or great or small. And these birds are called to the feast to eat their carcasses. When Jesus comes, he's going to feed the birds. What a reversal that is. It's not a feast of the birds. It's the feast for the birds. It's the birds that dine at the table and the human flesh is on the table. This, this would be a, a great uh, Gary Larson something, right? Could, could do that really well. If you know what I'm talking about, the far side. This is a bloody scene. Picture the ground covered with dead bodies and picture swarms of vultures descending upon the bodies and eating them. Now, if you know your Old Testament, this is far more than just a a gross scene. This is the ultimate in disgrace, to be eaten by birds. The the idea of birds eating human carcasses might seem strange, but the Old Testament speaks, it's a shame to that. In fact, the three most prominent prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all speak of this. Of the shame of being eaten, the horrors of judgment falling upon those who are disobedient and unbelieving. The cry of the psalmist, Psalm 79, is that the enemies, right, have invaded Jerusalem. Listen to Psalm 79, verse 2. And they have given the bodies of God's servants to the birds of heavens for food. Like, what a terrible thing it is. That's why I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I think it's the, the Marines, right? It leaves no body behind, right? There's, a, there's an honoring that we do to dead bodies, particularly killed in war. We will do whatever it takes to get the bodies back to treat them rightly. And here, eating disgrace. It's one thing to be disgraced in death, but secondly, it's to be disgraced in, by eaten by birds. I'm not sure if you remember the banter with David and Goliath. When David says, who's this who's taunting the armies of the living God? Oh, that uncircumcised Philistine. And the Philistine's coming back and saying to David, 1 Samuel seventeen forty four, Come now, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Do you remember that? Maybe you remember David taunting Goliath. But in this instance, taunting him, saying that the bodies are going to be right out for, for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field to eat up. But there's an eschatological mention of these events in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 37, talking about Gog and Magog. This is like right at the end. This is what this says. Ezekiel 39, 17 and following. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble, come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountain of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of the he-goats, and of the bulls, and of the fat beasts of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are filled, and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. And you shall all be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kings and warriors, declares the Lord God. This is exactly what John saw. You know, in fact, so much of Revelation 
is, is, is predated, right? Foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Like, John's just pulling Old Testament imagery. In fact, I, I've read several times that, that the revelation of John refers to the Old Testament more than any other book in the Bible without a single quote. And stuff like this. We see this birds are being gathered for this, for this feast. It's exactly what Ezekiel prophesied would come in that, that last day, that, that final battle. And the idea here is that basically so many are going to be killed, there's nobody around to bury the dead. They'll be left for the vultures to eat. There'll be so many corpses in the ground that the birds will be drunk with the blood of men. It's the great supper of God. It's contrasted to a different supper, Right? Last week, remember the marriage supper of the Lamb? The marriage supper of the Lamb that is when the, Jesus comes and weds to the church and all those who love Christ and come. And it's a great God being with us moment. But here's the reality, right? You can either eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb or you can be eaten at the great supper of God. It really depends upon whose side you're on. If, if you fight with Christ, if you follow him on one of those white horses, he'll win on your behalf. But if you side with Satan, the, the dragon of old, and the beast and the false prophet, you will be defeated. It's really that, that simple. We can follow. And, and this is sure as sure can be. And there are many in the world today who don't know this, don't believe this, right? Think that their way is the best. It's not. The best way is to find yourself following after Christ, following after the one on the white horse. Note also, how, however, these birds have been summoned to a feast which hasn't even yet been prepared. It's a little bit like a wedding invitation, right? It's a little bit like some kind of invitation you send out. You send it out not having prepared it. But he obtains the victory in verses 21 and, and 22. But the victory here is, is so sure that the birds are summoned to the feast. And that really, by the way, is the nature of the book of Revelation. Though many see the events of this book as described to take place, many of the events of this book are, are not yet taking place in the future sometime. They're seeing the book of Revelation is already accomplished. John saw these events. Verse 1, verse 17, verse 19, and and every one of these, he wrote in the past tense, this is what I saw, this is what I saw. But this will happen, according to God's prophetic word. It will come to pass. There's, there's no doubt about the outcome. You know, today is Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, two teams will, will go at it, the Niners and the Chiefs. And um, I think the Niners are favored a little bit. I'm not exactly sure. But it's sort of like a toss-up. We, we have no idea. That's not quite like the battle here. <laughs> the victory is sure. Christ is going to win, and he's going to win in a dominating fashion. In fact, even look at what comes to pass. Verse 19. And so the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The battle lines are drawn. Jesus on a white horse leading his army on one side. The beast on, uh, and his armies on the other side. Right? You can picture them all. Right? They're putting on their armor, they're putting on their helmets, they're, they're, they're putting on, taking up their shields, they're unsheathing their swords, and they're ready for the great battle. And this is one of the, the biggest non-event wars that ever took place. In verse 20 we read this. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and of those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. All done. It's like, where was the war? Where was the fight? Where was the conflict? Done. 
Now, if you want drama, right, you could have easily drawn this battle out. At least that's what they do in the movies. I remember years back watching the, the, the Narnia movie when it came out. Um, I, I still remember the, the final scene, even though it's been a long time since so I watched it. The Pevensey children, Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy, summoned by Aslan to Narnia uh, to wage this war of the White Witch. And, and much of the movie is all about this battle that's going to take place between Aslan's army and the army of the White Witch. And when it came to the last battle, the movie dragged on and on and on. The armies arrayed themselves in the battlefield against each other. The, the camera focused upon those who were ready for battle, right? From one face to the other face to the other face to the other face. And enemy side and, and the good side. And Peter Stern resolved to lead the army to victory. And then the White Witch was in defense against him and, and looking at their faces. And you saw the fear in some of the creatures' eyes. You could feel the emotion in the air. And then the charge, Peter says, for Aslan, or something like that. And then, and then there's the, the charge as the two armies begin to move toward each other, and they're charging for one another, and they slow it down into slow motion. So like, yeah, and they're coming the other way, yeah, and they're going, and then there's a big clash, and you see this, the bad side then begins to, to mount efforts over the good, and then you see the creatures being killed, both, both good and bad, and the outcome of the battle seems to, to wage one way, and then the, the wicked witch seems to prevail. The White Witch does until Aslan comes on the scene and finally puts an end to the, the White Witch. And for 20 minutes or so of movie time, the battle rages because that's the way you do it in movies. You make it a big deal. You, you hold the outcome in suspense a little bit. But when you come to verse Re- in Revelation, the, the battle's done in verse 20. It's like, it's like finished. Simply read, the beast was captured with his false prophet. And if you want to settle book, sell books, it's not the way to end the book. Be much better of the details of the battle, telling what happened, went back and forth. By the way, it's a little bit like the crucifixion. You read the Gospels, it just says, and Jesus was crucified. It doesn't long drawn out. Everyone knew what crucifixion was, and there he was. He was crucified. But God isn't interested in selling books and making it interesting. He's interested in giving comfort. And our comfort comes when we see the sovereignty of Christ coming against the armies of the world, which seem puny to him, throwing the false prophet and the beast in the lake of fire, killing the rest of the sword that comes out of his mouth, right? That's what verse 21 says. And the rest were slain by the sword that comes out from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. So he took those two captured, and just his mouth goes out and kills everyone, and the feast has been prepared, and all the flesh is right there. The birds come and eat it, and I love how it ends, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So many corpses, there weren't enough birds. But I just say that comfort for us comes in the fact that who's, who's going to win? Jesus will win, and it won't even be close. It's the beast and the false prophet thrown in something like a, a volcano, probably a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The fallen man eating, eaten by birds. Just total, complete Destruction. Satan and his followers have no chance. And I think that's where the comfort is to us. Is that we follow Christ because he's going to win for sure. And he's so much more powerful and so much more dominant than all the nations of the world. I just think that one of the most destructive thoughts that come into our minds is this thought of dualism in the world. As if there's this this equal cosmic battle between good and evil. Now, Now for sure, there's cosmic battle. 
between good and evil, right? We wage spiritual warfare against the schemes of Satan. But in, in the grand scheme of things, it's not an equal battle. It, it's not equal good versus equal bad and who's going to win out in the end. It's not how the universe works. It's Christ, the all-powerful one, who has gained the victory for us at the cross. And whatever Satan does in this time and age, it's, 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 it's all futile. It's just for a short time, Revelation chapter 12. He just had a short time on the earth. And for some reason, God lets that short time go. He just says, okay, well, you guys, you guys have it out and deal with it for, for a little bit. But when the time's up, and when our prayer is answered, come, Lord Jesus, the battle will come and it will almost be over before it starts. I just encourage you. I think that the encouragement from the text is that when, when we pray, come, Lord Jesus, this is what we're praying, come and smash your enemies do it quickly, and let us be on the backside watching it on the side of the victor, on the side of, of Christ. So we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We, we want to be following Jesus in this whole deal. I think that's the, the great application for us. I think there's no better thing than to just bow our heads and pray and submit to this King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we have seen week in, week out this prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, and after 10 months of working through this book, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, we've come to this end where we see Jesus coming and winning the battle. And, and God, there's much here that is apocryphal, and whether there's a real battlefield or not, I, I don't know. But this is, this is how it will be in the end, that you will be all in all. Even as Darren read for us today from Philippians chapter 2, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. He is the Lord of all. He will exert His sovereignty someday. You are the one to whom we need to bow down. And I would pray, God, that pastors like this would just remove doubts from us. If we're going through difficulty and hard times, just even as the early church was, and the persecutions and the hardships and the mockings, just even today, if, if you even stand up for traditional marriage, just people will see us shocked, really. God, help us to stand up against those things. Help us to stand for righteousness, trusting that in the end, God, you will crush, defeat, and win. As we're merely one of those clothed in white robes following you in the battlefield, just watching you take your vengeance. God, and the best is yet to come as we see all that's laid up for us in chapters 21 and in chapters 22. God, give us joy. Give us confidence. Give us hope. God, thank you that we don't need to be the one executing vengeance. We just need to be the one following and watching. And you will execute your judgment perfectly upon the earth. And may we trust in that, O oh Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.